following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. If you remember, you weren't here last week, so just fill you in quickly. It was a, uh, you were here two weeks ago? Did we yes. Discuss, we discussed the guy who was killed in a motorcycle. So that guy who was killed in a motorcycle, um, last week's conclusion was that, that Rabbi Grossman was wrong. We did the wrong thing, meaning that uh, based on what Dr. Steinberg says, um, basically it would only be permitted, he only says it's permitted in the case where the person was previously married and the wife or he explicitly consented, meaning either the wife wants it to happen to perpetuate where they had no children, um, or he specifically explicitly consented to that he wants this to happen and stated we have it in writing or stated to someone that he wants it to happen. In that scenario they would permit um, his sperm being used post post uh, postmortem um, to be removed and, and subsequently used um, in specifically for his wife. Okay, in this case we're a single, single fellow it doesn't that would be more problematic. Um, especially, especially since we don't know there was consent in this case by the deceased. Um, and the question becomes parents, not parents. So this, uh, so today we're going to focus on a different angle, two different angles actually. One is two questions. Um, just the questions. I apologize for the Hebrew. Why? There's two questions I have here on both sides. One of the answers, just the questions. So the first, uh, we'll, we'll go with, I'm just going to mention the second one first, but we have to move on. So on the other side, the question is, let's say the, the person did consent explicitly, the husband. Now the wife doesn't want to do it. So the question becomes, how does that work? Meaning, because we usually have a rule in, in Jewish law, which uh, principle, uh, that we we very much respect the wishes of the deceased. The deceased leaves a will, try very hard to fulfill his wishes. In this case, let's say he left a will saying that he wants semen taken from his body and he wants a future child. So does that in any which way obligate the wife or not? That's, how does that work? So what's the wife's obligations? This was an actual question posed in 1989. Um, Okay, so I'll just read you the question. The question was uh, written by a doctor to the rabbi. Chvod Harav X Shlita, doesn't say who the rabbi was. Vakish Ladat, I would like to know, Kate said, Moralanu Hatora Lino Bimikudalan. How does the Torah tell us to act in the following scenario? Hanimtza Kate Bitipuli, that is now under my discretion. This doctor's writing. Adam Tsair, a young man young person, he was struck with a uh, terminal illness or no, mamaret, a serious illness, bitter illness, I'm not sure what the word mamaret means. It's some type of cancer, obviously, he said before we treat him with radiation, he banked some sperm in the freezer. Uh, to be frozen, in order that she be left, because he never married to have children. 
um, and the sourness of our hearts. Niftar Atzayir, this person passed away. Halaz Lebetalamo to his eternal world. Bitzavato in his will. Mivakeshu Mishto, he he requests from his wife. Shetol Lahakim Loshem that she should help him perpetuate his name. Vitaskim Libanot Mizaro Hamufkad, and she should agree to build from his from his seed. Um, that's banked. Leman lo yim chashmom Israel. In order, his name shouldn't be erased from the from Israel. Vinishalat hashela. So the question that was asked is number one: Is im choval yishalakim tzava ba'ala manoch? Is it obligatory on the wife to fulfill her husband's wishes? Um, meaning again, because we have this concept of respect, the wishes of the dead. Or shema asur. Maybe it's even prohibited to fulfill his wishes. Or lo ratzayadaver. Or it depends on if she wants to or not. Um, or it's not uh, condoned, or we don't condone such a thing. So there's three options. Is it obligatory? Is it prohibited? Or is it, do we don't condone it? Meaning we stay out of it. Up to, uh, up to the wife. Question number two was, How should this woman, um, what should she do? So she took an oath to her husband, while he was alive, to fulfill his his uh, will. So in other words, the question then it becomes, so now if she doesn't do it, it's a violation of oath. Is that further obligated? So this is the question. Where, where did she take that oath? I mean, where where in Jewish tradition does the woman take an oath? No, just this oh. particular case. Yeah, there is no, normally there's so no the, oath. The second thing happens to be, the, what happens in, if the scenario was, I don't know if it actually was, he doesn't say, that she actually took an oath to fulfill his wishes. In this, in yeah, in this particular... Theoretically, she took an oath. Well, I, I don't know if it's theoretical. It sounds like it's not theoretical. It's actually, it's actually just based because no, just the doctor's asking. Yeah. Are there any situations that you know of? They're suggesting that in this in this situation, she did. Do you know of any other situation where a woman takes an oath mm, to abide I, by I her husband? I personally never heard of it, but in the Torah you find will. it. Like uh, the sons of Jacob or Joseph took an oath to bury Jacob in the land of Israel like that. But that's... that's, the that's yeah. Men, and that men. personally, I don't know. The women. Oh, I, I don't know any personally, but it could happen. I Meaning, it's just a personal. Okay, no, I just. Yeah, it doesn't. It I don't think it means it's a regular occurrence. It just sounds like a theoretical question, not an actual question. Right. So I'm assuming if it's a doctor asking it, it's not less theoretical. But I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. Right. So it's, his name is Dr. Yoel Engelhard, Mumcha Bilikui Puriot, a expert in fertility issues, Afula in the city of Athens. Okay, so again, this was, the year was 1989. So we're not going to discuss that one yet. We're going to go back to this. So that's just an interesting question. Um, we'll see if we have time for that. We're going to go turn back over for this other question, which is the one I did a little more research on this week. Um, so this question, this, by the way, is all taken from this book, which is written by six volume, I believe, five or six volumes, um, written by a rabbi Israel named Rabbi Zilberstein, who's still alive, and he gave, this is actually, a, it's based on classes that he gave to physicians, and just written down, questions that he got, and then he would present it to physicians, um, so that's what, that's what it's based on. So the question number two, it's actually question number one in his book, um, is he doesn't address our case, by the way, of single guy uh, married taking the issue self of taking of removal of the sperm. He doesn't address it. 
But in this case, he's addressing a different question, which is assuming it was done, meaning someone's sperm was taken um, after death. He's just, he's not even discussing whether it's permitted or not. He doesn't address that. So it's after our issue. The question is, uh, assuming it was done, so as we know, there's a concept in Jewish law known as yibu, um, which is levirate marriage. In English, I have no idea what levirate marriage is, but that's the way Azko translates it. Um, I don't know what that word levirate means. I don't know if it really has a meaning. It might be a made-up word. Come closer, I'm not sick. And I showered this morning. I know. I, I don't be shy. I'm close. Okay. Um, so... So Levirate marriage. So Yibum is, as we know, it's a concept, fascinating, very strange concept, maybe some would call it, which, yes. uh, which is to perpetuate, when someone dies without children, a married person dies without children, to perpetuate the memory of the deceased, the Torah says there's a mitzvah to, for the... The term is a derivative of the Latin word levir, meaning husband's brother. Oh, never knew that. See that? It's worth coming this morning just Lever. to learn that. Just worth coming this morning just to learn that. Now I can use that in class. It sounds like I know Latin. Was it actually done? Oh, of course it was done. Well, um, of course. Of course it was done many, many times um, throughout history. And in the times of the Talmud, they did put a stop to it. And we'll explain in a second, so we'll get there. But, but it was it was done throughout history. Is it still being done? No, it's not done anymore. There's a there's a loophole which we'll talk about. Nice biblical loophole. The Torah gives a loophole, and we'll read the verses in a second. But basically, the mitzvah to sum up the mitzvah, and we'll we'll see it in the verses itself. The mitzvah is when a, a husband dies childless. He never had children in his life, not just from this woman, from any woman. Um, we. In order to perpetuate the memory of the brother, of the husband, we have to sneeze. Sorry. Um, so we, we. <coughs> thank you. We allow the brother-in-law, who normally would would not be allowed. It's actually a biblical prohibition for a brother-in-law to marry his sister-in-law. Brother-in-law and sister-in-law is, is one of the. Torah considers quote-unquote immoral relationships, ancestral relationships in this case, maybe even, even though they're not blood-related. Um, but the Torah prohibits that normally. In this, even your ex-sister-in-law, in this case, the Torah says it's a mitzvah to marry your ex-sister-in-law. Okay, and as we'll see, of course, so the Torah does say it's the woman's prerogative. I mean, we don't force it on the sister-in-law. She doesn't like the brother-in-law. Of course, she has a right to say she doesn't want to marry him. And so to the opposite, if the brother-in-law wants to get out of it, this mitzvah, the Torah mi- says in the Pesukim itself, we're going to see, the Torah makes allowances for the, for, for a way out, which is a, a some type of heebie-jeebie process called chalitza. That's a Talmudic term, heebie-jeebie. And, uh, and whatever, it's a very strange process, but basically the sister-in-law spits in the shoe of the brother-in-law, in front of a betin, Somehow that absolves him of the mitzvah. Exactly how that works, I have no idea, but this is what the book says. Um, so we can't really explain it. But this is very Kabbalistic, very uh, esoterical, whatever whatever happens there, we don't know. And it's a, But basically, once either, so basically you have a choice. If the husband dies childless, the brother-in-law and sister-in-law, the existing brother-in-law and sister-in-law, either 
can do Yibam, get married and live happily ever after, or they can do Chalitza, this process, which absolves them of the mitzvah of Yibam. Okay? Now, the Chalitza part is still done today. Um, because again, the biblical obligation still exists to marry. But in the times of the Talmud already, uh, there's different opinions, but we pass and we rule like the opinion that says they stopped allowing the actual Yibum to take to, to, to happen. And the reason being is because in order for the allowance of Yibum to work, meaning you're allowing a biblical prohibition of a brother marrying a sister, Torah says to allow that in this case, but it's only if you're doing it for the sake of the mitzvah. That means if the sister-in-law, the brother-in-law happened to like uh, the sister-in-law and they really, uh, you know, loved each other before or, or even they didn't love each other but she, he's doing it because he's desperate to get married or she, she's very pretty, whatever the case is, that would basically mean when they do get married they're violating the biblical law of, of brother and sister. And it has to be for the sake of mitzvah. And the Talmud says we don't trust any of these men anymore to do it for the sake of mitzvah and therefore they basically said we only should do chalitza. Um, again, this is Talmudic times, not even today's times. So since the Talmud's times, um, only chalitza is done. We don't do yibum anymore. We don't allow yibum anymore, which is a very interesting thing. It seems, in a certain sense, like Reform Judaism, where the, the rabbis are coming along and saying, this mitzvah, is, is, we don't allow, we don't do it anymore. So it's a lot of discussion. The Talmud already discusses how can they do that. But again, it's to protect their concern of the violation of... of of uh, Ron would say it's because they, the rabbis weren't happily socially with the mitzvah and that's why they absolved right that's probably what you would just guess I don't know I actually would probably echo what Natalie said which is I'm not sure how often it really did happen although theoretically it happened we know that with uh, Reuven and uh, and uh, yeah that's pretty tough but we it did not happen. It also wasn't really it it did not right. But right. The concept, yeah, perpetual legacy. Was there. Yeah. Right. So uh, yeah. yes. So so yeah, how often really did it happen? I can't say. I'm not a historian. But but what's interesting is so when I was giving the original class uh, discussing the case somewhere else, so there were two people came to me and said, That's disgusting, how could you that's a sick thing that they want to take sperm sample from the body, etc. So, actually, and I didn't, forgot to bring it, but when the, actually the same rabbi asked the, uh, oh, sorry, it's not the same rabbi, it's a different rabbi, um, Zalman Chami Goldberg, um, wrote about this question in the periodical Asia in 1999, I think it was. Um, so he, when permitting this, this case, when there's a married woman to the wife to take a sperm sample from the body, he invokes the concept of Yibam. He says, we see that the Torah is very um, focuses and very into this concept of perpetuating the legacy of a deceased person who had no children. And that's one of the reasons he bases his permission on, to allow the taking of the sperm sample. Obviously in those days this concept didn't exist. Maybe uh, you know, the, right, the concept of removing a sperm and, and inseminating a woman impregnating her with a deceased person's sperm. That didn't exist until probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I told them artificial, the concept of artificial insemination. Um, so, so, but he uses Yibum as a basis for his permission. So, those meaning, again, you see he's taking the concept, obviously, the 
concept of Yivum that we, the Torah stresses very much to perpetuate the legacy of the deceased person. And he uses that to, uh, to, um, to allow this. So the question becomes, and uh, how are you, sir? Good. Um, the question becomes, where are you going? So far away. Mark, I'll, I'll ask you in the future, please dress down. I mean, you always, when you come, I feel naked. Like you, uh, um, so I'm joking, I'm joking. You can keep it up. Um, so, so the question is, so, so, so two things. We'll, we'll read through the psukim, but the question that's going to be addressed here is a question of even assuming it's done. So let's say you have a married, not our scenario, but a case of a married couple. Husband died, they took the sperm sample from the body. You, were you here? We discussed this? Uh, no, but I think I may be familiar with the story, so I'm, okay, I'm picking so it up real fast. So they, so they took this, from the deceased, they took a sperm sample, um, and now they're going to impregnate her after post-mortem, as we said, and they're going to impregnate the ex-wife, or whatever, not ex, the widow. Call that ex widow. The widow, yes. That's a better word than ex-wife. Um, so, uh, so the question becomes, is she obligated in Yibum or not? Meaning he died childless. Torah says if someone dies childless, you have to perpetuate, after the brother has to marry, or at least to Chalitza. So the question is, in this case, where she's going to be impregnated, either prior to the question is, if it's just banked, or assuming even she is impregnated with the sperm, how does that work with the mitzvah vivas? Is she exempt now from doing Chalitza or not? Okay, this was a real question, actual question, posed to the rabbi, believe it or not. So, <laughs> so let's read the question. So we're on this side here. So, Chalitza, though, was more about the relationship between the husband and wife, the new husband and wife, as opposed to... Yeah, so there is. I thought there was no, a No, 100%, but the question is, in this, is this considered, that's what we're going to discuss, and is she considered, is he considered as if he had a child? Meaning the Torah only obligates you to do either Yibam or Chalitza when the husband died childless. The question is, in this case, right. he died childless, but he's going to have a child with well, his... He could, it's gonna, yeah. right, he's going to have a child with his own sperm. So is that considered an exemption for, for Yibam or Chalitza? That's the question. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so, so let's see... So, so this was the question posed to the rabbi. And you see from the question, by the way, that it actually... This, by the way, it sounds stranger to us here in the United States. But in Israel, from what I've been finding out, this is not the concept of, of banking sperm, and it's much more common there. It has to do with the fact, two, two facts. One is um, people go to war often, people are in the army, everyone's in the army, and therefore, as young people unfortunately get killed in the Jewish community over there much more often um, than there's very few soldiers in the United States, Jewish young boys. In the community, so that's number one. So they realize there, when you go to war and you're going to be going to war, you you realize your immortality, and therefore you you many of them bank sperm. This is very common now to bank sperm prior to joining the army. Um, that's number one. Number two is um, Israel. As, I'm not sure of the psychology of it. There have been books written on it. I have read, I don't know if I agree with it, but there is, because it's a, it was a country of survivors, uh, originally Holocaust survivors, 
um, when the state was founded. So there is this concept of we gotta catch up uh, birth rate. We gotta increase the birth rate. It also has to do with the demographics in Israel itself between the Arabs and the Jews, obviously. So there's this, as all Jews all over the world, but over there the pressure is even higher that the, the people want to, or society or the government even wants you to have many more Jewish children. So there is, actually it's fascinating probably, I think Israel has one of the highest, first of all, they, they, uh, they compensate you for all aspects of IVF and, and uh, artificial insemination in general, not just in these cases, but um, it's covered by insurance. Socialist country, as you know, socialist medicine. So there's many, many uh, clinics for infertility clinics, all almost 100% paid for. So you can do IVF, where in America it's costing you $25,000 a pop. Over there, it's it's uh, you know you can do it for you know a thousand shekel, so it, which is very cheap. It's kosher for an unmarried man to bank his sperm. Um, that's a good question. He does discuss that in a previous thing. Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, that's we'll get. We'll we'll maybe address that soon. But uh, it's it's in some cases yes. In many cases it would seem like if the purpose is, you know, for good purposes maybe yes. Okay. So so but but it's very common there. That's my point. This yeah. is also this is also the, the Pope's justification for not giving a divorce to Henry VIII from Catherine of Aragon, which led to the the development Oof. of the English church. Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth yes. had a brother Arthur. Arthur was oh, married to his brother. Ar no, Arthur was married to Catherine of Aragon. Arthur dropped dead. Henry the Eighth they they brought they then brought in the took, brother. Brought in the brother, Henry the Eighth. Aragon, Catherine of Aragon had a baby, a female, but didn't provide a male. Mm -hmm. So he didn't provide a male. He wanted to get rid of Mrs. of of Aragon, of Catherine and go with Anne Boleyn. Well, the Pope said, well, Catherine of Aragon's brother was the Emperor of Spain, so this didn't really go in so well with the Pope. So they, he continued to 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 petition the Pope to annul this marriage, and the Pope would not annul the marriage, so Henry said, okay, to the Pope, you're out of here. I'm starting my own church, and all the, all the gold and the monasteries are, uh, are the monasteries, and all their property now belong to the royal house, at which point he roasted all the priests. And so then what's the connection? The connection is, yeah. is that he, was, marriage. That it was, was he said it brother? was not a good marriage, it should not have happened, and here's the biblical justification to say that it should have. Arthur died childless. Was the childless. brother marrying sister-in-law there? No? no, no. Arthur was the brother of Henry VIII. Yeah. Older he died brother. Childless. He married Catherine. He went and proceeded to drop dead. Then Henry married Catherine. They had a female. And they had a female, and he wanted a male, and he wanted this hot French, this hot French, Italian, French, English yeah, mistress. Uh, yeah. And the Pope said no. And he argued that it wasn't a, it wasn't a proper relationship between him and Catherine. And here's the biblical justification to say that it? it was. If only she had spit in the ship. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The problem. That's what should have done. Yeah. Okay, so let's read the question inside. Because this question was posed in 1978. This question was posed in 1978. So the title on this responsum is Hazara Milachutit Mizera Bal. Artificial insemination of the husband's sperm. Laachar Moto. 
after his death, Lehin Chalitza, as it relates to the concept of Chalitza. Okay, so again, 19, this is Kislev, 1970, uh, 1978. So it's a long time ago. This is the beginning. Uh, you know, I don't know when the first case, I mean, first case of when artificial insemination started becoming Around more then. common. Yeah. So the Chavada Rav Shlita, Ma'adin, it's interesting that they take out the names of the rabbis. Mm. In this case, the doctor too. <coughs> um, so Ma'adin, Kishimazriyam Bi'isha, what's the halacha? When you inseminate a woman, Mizerabaila, from the sperm of her husband, after his death, does she become absolved, um, exempt from Chalitza? Um, if that's in that scenario. So again, this is actually, in this case, it's theoretical, because he's saying it's just, it can happen, it's going to happen, in our days. I believe he's talking about it in the Air Force. It seems like there was a story then in the news about an uh, Air Force, uh, someone in the Air Force who did this, who banked his sperm. Shetaram al-Watam l'chalalit, before they they uh, start flying, doing their missions, Hishiru Mizerim and Ben Kazara, the Air Force, I don't know why specifically in the Air Force, they would bank their, uh, their sperm. Mechshash, Shema Yifku Klea Maybe, oh, that's why, because in the Air Force, even if you don't get hurt, I guess because of the G Force, it can affect your sperm count, etc. Or at least they thought in those days. So, meaning there was an issue of them not being fertile. Uh, just being in the Air Force alone um, can affect your fertility. Okay, uh, dry, you know, I guess, dry, the G Force, whatever it's called. What's it called? No, I think it's been faster than the speed of lightning. Yeah, I think that it's been discredited by now. So could be. Okay, so what? Oh, I think it was the speed. So, so Shemayik could clear a lot of that their fertility, their their plumbing would be affected. and they wouldn't be able to give birth with their wives. Or they wouldn't come back alive. Therefore, they banked their sperm in order to impregnate their wives after death. Um, so the, the question comes up, uh, the question is the child born from this sperm that happens after the death of the father? Does it exempt her from the mitzvah of chalitza? Doctor, blank. Okay. So the first thing really is to address um, what your question was, which is, first of all, is it permitted? So that he's not really addressing that, we're not going to address. But let's assume in a case of where they're a married couple, it is permitted. For we, the, when, and that is, most posts can say you're allowed to bank sperm if it's to have children. Surely if you never fulfill the mitzvah having children, if the, if the goal is to have children, that's what you're doing it for, and it's permitted. Um, for married men, okay, let's assume. Doesn't discuss whether this, this is a theoretical case. The the question really becomes: When someone, a woman, is impregnated through artificial insemination, who's the daddy? Uh, meaning, do we view, since there was no, uh, there was no relationship, so to speak, there's no sexual intercourse. Do we view the father, the donor of the sperm, as the daddy? So that's our lucky question, which is not so simple. We discussed it here in the past, uh, maybe two, three years ago. There's actually precedence in halacha. The, the, the 
Shochanarch, or at least the commentaries in the Shochanarch, discuss a case brought Gamara in the Medrash of a of a woman impregnated in the bath in the bathhouse. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the assumption is there was no meaning a case where the woman went to bathe in the, in the bathhouse, and there was no uh, man present, but she got impregnated. From uh, mm. from from sperm that flowed in the water. You, you know, you okay. Really? So what's the halacha really? of that of that uh, pregnancy? Don't lie to your parents. Who's the daddy? Okay. So that's there's discussion there whether it's actual case or not. The point the is, boy. even if it's a theoretical Tell case, um, the, but you this is the post can use this precedent, this discussion halacha to figure out whether artificial insemination, meaning a similar case, we we assume we know who the sperm is from, whose sperm it was. But do we view that person as the father or not? Okay, the, the sperm donor, so to speak. Quickly, what was the answer to the story about the lady in the bath? Okay, so, that, so there's, of course, two opinions there. But we, but we seem to rule... Quickly is not a... Yes, there's no quick right. So there's no quick answer. But the point is, so there's two opinions there. We seem to rule today, we do... Um, the normative ruling would be in artificial insemination. We do consider the father the father. So let's say it would be relevant... Charles the Cohen and things like that. No, the, 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 the question is based on normally, you know, it's really, and what's fascinating thing, if you think about it, we, we never really know who the daddy is, even a normal birth. You know who the mommy is because that, you know, they witnessed the birth. So you know who the mommy is, but you never Actually, know. Actually, you don't anymore. Well, um, because you, have, you have eggs put in. Yeah, but that's assuming again. We know who the birth mother is. We might not know who the egg, who the genetic well, genetic mother is. No, we know who the birth mother is. Before no, the no, egg was put in. No, it's irrelevant. We know who the birth mother is. We see the birth happening. So that's something everyone but can there attest. But the question is that. Hey, there might be other mothers involved besides the birth mothers. So that's a good question. They, but they, but they, I'm they, saying, they but issues. as far as who gave birth to the baby, we know. Who gave birth to the baby? Who the father is? We never really know. Could be the mailman. It could be uh, you know many, many options. Okay. So the so Talmud says the Talmud already discusses this. How do we know really who the father is? How can we ascertain? Today we have DNA testing and there's other ways of figuring out. But in those days, before DNA testing, right before 20 years, ahead, really, how do we know halachically who to consider the father? So the Talmud says a, a very important principle, which is the principle is. Um, rov be'ilos, you know, do we go in, in halacha, we go with majority. Okay, we always go with majority. Majority rules in halacha. If you have ten, nine kosher butcher shops in the city and one non-kosher, you can eat the meat because you can assume that uh, the meat is from the, the kosher butcher shop. That's always majority rules. It was last week's parsha, actually, parsha mishpatim. In all halacha, we go with majority. Okay, whether it's a court, an actual court case, you have nine, uh, you know, two out of three judges, Right, it's like an Arab Supreme Court, same thing, um, but also in other areas of halacha, majority rules. Right, when you're drinking milk from a cow, how do you know the cow is kosher? Maybe the cow has a lung disease, right? Well, you're allowed to drink milk, we don't do an MRI in every cow before we shecht it because rove behemoth kshiris. Most cows don't have lung disease, don't have, uh, are not terminally ill, therefore, you're allowed to drink milk. The milk is kosher, okay? That's the way halacha works. So, the same thing applies to daddies. Um, the Talmud says, Rov bi'ilos holoch acharabal. Most relations a wife is going to have, we're assuming are with her husband. Okay? Even if she's, uh, you know, she's had someone on the side, 
she's she's uh, she's having an affair on the side. Most the majority of her relations are still going to be with her husband, and therefore, when she gets impregnated, she gets pregnant. We could assume that that, that the daddy is the one she's married. Okay, that way, if he looks like the mailman, he talks like the mailman, he becomes a mailman. Then that's a different story. Um, so so, but but that's the that's the halachic concept, and we can assume that. Now the, that's only if. Um, she became pregnant, meaning, meaning the, in normal case of normal relations. The question becomes, if she gets impregnated without having relations, so then that, can, that chazaka that we have that doesn't necessarily apply. Has, has somebody questioned, has, has, have the rabbis questioned the plausibility? Of course, by the way, there's witnesses that she was with the mailman. That's the okay, no, story. The plausibility of I've got, I got pregnant in the swimming pool? I mean, does anyone question the plausibility it's of It's not this? so implausible, by the way. I have read his medical journals that discuss this case in the Talmud and, and say that it is, there is, it is possible. Very rare, but it is a possibility. Okay, well, I think it's more likely that somebody just isn't, you know. That's true. More right? likely yeah. may not be telling the truth. Truth isn't, doesn't always decide halach. Again, we have halachic yeah, principles. So the question is, and this is very important, actually, we always we try very hard, as we discussed in the past, not to invalidate a child. We, we don't want to have, what's, uh, what's the word for moms? Or? Moms. Yeah, moms. We, but I'm saying, but the illegitimate child is what I was looking for. So we try, we, halacha bends over backwards to make sure a child is not it, deemed as illegitimate. It, it, it so therefore, we're going to use halakhic principles. We go with the majority. Is it, of course, it's possible lying, as we'll see in, this, in a coming case. Yes. Okay. okay, so now, so it is, but that's basically the principle. So the, so, so the question is, so in this case, getting back to the evil, yeah, question? I was just wondering what happens to sperm that isn't wanted. So, so... Does it need to be buried? Uh, no, halakhically, it's very interesting, where we much more lenient than the Catholics in the sense that uh, we do not believe sperm is, is a life, potential life, just like an egg is potential life, but even someone just asked me this week, stem cells we've discussed in the past, stem cells, for example, and even fetuses are not considered um, a life <coughs> and therefore there's no issue of, even a fetus really doesn't have to be buried. We do it, the custom is to bury a fetus after a certain, t- uh, you know, if once it's third trimester, but till then uh, the Talmud calls it Maya Ba'alma, it's just a mere sack of water, it's nothing. The custom is we, you know, we go, we put it in the cemetery, but it's really not, um, even a fetus is not considered life in halacha, so surely not sperm, egg, those are all stem cells, we can flush them down the toilet. We have no problem with that, not like the state of Texas, it doesn't. So, so um, halacha is very lenient in that sense, and therefore we allow stem cell research, all that, we don't create embryos, to do that, I mean, it's a slippery slope. There's slippery slope issues, but there's really no halachically. There's nothing wrong. Stem cells, etc., including sperm and that. Um, okay, so again, the issue of banking the sperm is a different issue. It's an issue of husband wasting seed. There's a prohibition of wasting seed. That's a separate issue. But again, that's why I said, if it's the intention of banking the sperm is to have children, then it's allowed. If it's for research, it might be a different issue. Might not be allowed. Um, so, again, so the question here, getting back to our issue, is a case of, is she exempt from chalitza? Okay, so, so without getting too convoluted, he starts off, so the first question is, we, we're going to go with those, like we said, there's two opinions in the bathtub case. So 
question number one is to deal with is this this child at all? Meaning, the only she can only be exempt from Yibam and Chalitza, obviously, if we consider this the deceased child. So that's question number one. So we're going to see now. Um, obviously, this whole question is, is only relevant if we're assuming, like the opinion um, that says it is considered the, the bathtub case would be considered the father's child. He is the daddy. The sperm donor would be the daddy. So then here too. Obviously, using the deceased sperm after death, we would consider the child. What, 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 Otherwise, the question is a moot question. We don't consider the, the guy the daddy, so then this whole so, question is irrelevant. Well, obviously, she can't be exempt from Khalid. So, but yeah. if she became pregnant and, while, and she was married, the and, and and he was deployed, and she took God, didn't change the water in the tub. Then we have then the <laughs> assumption is that it's her husband's trial. So so the, the no, question it, of the it's not a question of who the sperm donor is. We know who the sperm donor is. The question is, is it halachically considered the father when there was no sexual act? That's the question. But we know with daddy it was her husband's sperm. We know who's who genetically the father is. The question the hus- is, her husband. Yeah. The question okay. is here we have the sperm, it's has a label. Okay, so we're off, the bath- from him. we're right. off the bathtub business. No, we're not. What I'm saying is the bathtub question is not a question of Isn't we don't know who the father is. It's a question okay. is halachically, legally, meaning according to Jewish law, is he considered the father when there was no sexual act? Okay. When someone uh, was a, just a sperm donor, do we can still consider him, so as far as Yich is concerned, let's say he was a Kohen, is that kid a Kohen now? Okay. That's who's, really who's Dina's father from Bible times? Dina's father? I mean, Dina's... Uh, who's uh, Dina's fa- father? Fa- yeah. Because remember, she was switched in utero, according to the yeah, uh, story. Oh, that's a good question. Good point. So, so who's, her, her, who's her father? Of course, Jacob's father. Yeah. How do you know? That's a good, that's a good point. No, because either way, the choice is opposed, Jacob. But you say... It doesn't matter. It says sperm donor. I hear you saying that. Good point. You don't, you don't know that yeah, the Jacob are, yeah, is... Okay, that whole story is... We don't I know the whole story is nuts. <laughs> among many, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's um, a story? The story is that Leah and Rachel were competing for offspring, and uh, Leah was going to end up with another male offspring, which would have upset the whole balance, meaning that Rachel would only end up with one male offspring, and the two handmaidens would end up with two, and Leah would end up with seven. And so God, in his infinite wisdom and generosity, decided to, in utero, Move the switch, male. Switch the uterus. And, and Rachel was pregnant with a female, supposedly, and the, the Leia babies Davin were switched in utero. In utero, in utero, in utero transfer. It happened, of course. What do you mean? So that Rachel ended up with a male. Why do they even have to have this whole story? Be, well, it's, they had to explain a pasuk in the Bible, but but the point is that uh, anyway. Dina ended up being married, get, being born through Leia. Mm-hmm. And so the assumption is that there was this transfer. So this is my question. is like if you're talking about sperm transferring and you lose somehow the identity Saying of the father... Saying if that story were, let's bring a proof from that Medrash. Then, That's then there would be another problem point. with who is Dina's father. But it wasn't a question here because it was the same husband for both. I understand, but if you're talking about if you take, you were just saying without a sexual act, is it considered a father? Without a sexual act, I'm sure. Saying that, even though over there there was a sexual act. When by mistake they didn't take the father's sperm from the bank, they took someone else's sperm from the bank and impregnated the wife. 
That, by the way, that's some of the I'm sure it's the, 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 the post scheme that disallow artificial insemination. That's their concern. Sure that there's going to be mistakes in the lab, and, which there are. It happens. It happens. On SVU every week. <laughs> So it happened to Houston Lab. Chain the Virgin. That's the story. Um, so. Anyway. Yeah, so no, it's not a. I thought it was a valid point, but it's not. I'll tell you why. Because in that case, there was a sexual act in both cases. But Yaakov impregnated both women. It's yeah, just like it switching the feet. It was a sexual act for the wrong fetus. Said it, but it, it was it was a sexual act. Created a fetus. We're just switching around the fetus. It's a little minor detail. You're potentially, right? I, I agree. You're not okay. going to base anything. So, on but that. the point is like this. So now, what's so getting back to the even question? So the precedent he brings is a very fascinating case, convoluted case from the Node of Yehuda has a response. So, and I'm not going to get into all the details of this case. A lot of issues here. Um, but the Node of Yehuda was there was a woman. Was this case fascinating case? This is a 16th century Prague. And the que- I don't know where the woman lived, but the question was posed to the Nodabuda like this. Um, you don't have this, I'll, I'll just read it to myself and translate it. So it says a woman was married for seven years to her husband. It's an actual case, not theoretical. And they had no children. Okay? This person, the husband, got sick and was on his deathbed. Three days prior to the death of her husband, um, when he was literally on his deathbed, the Hever Kadisha was already called into the room. Um, if, um, and they were watching him day and night. They were with him, the Kadisha, um, in order that he sh- his soul shouldn't leave. That there was a minute. There's a Jewish custom that you don't allow someone dies. There should be minion in the room, or at least someone in the room. Uh, soul shouldn't leave, and the person's alone in the room. So some kind of custom. So the Kadisha was there already in this case in order that he shouldn't die um, alone. Tavla Ishtalunadasa. His the woman, the wife, went to the mikvah. Okay. Um, and Uludvaren, according to her story, this Yachtaimo, she was with him. Venivala lo biyom chafchatir. It even gives you the dates. She had relations with him on chafchatir, twenty-eighth of year, and chaftet year nifter. He died the next day. This is her story. Okay, Venishar achkatan, and he was left with a young, a young brother, Shalashan, three-year-old brother. So he died childless. Um, but he had a three-year-old brother. So Allah is that is, that's a very not a good case because the wife has to wait till it becomes her mitzvah to do chalitza or maybe not. I don't remember the exact halacha. I think she has, no, she can't get married until chalitza is done. Um, so the question is, what do you do in this case? And she went to the mikvah to prove that this was no, no, she got the mikvah. No, no. She this regularly is scheduled visit. Regular scheduled visit. She went to the mikvah. She had a period. She went to the mikvah. So, um, so now she and she claims that no, which was chaf chasir. She I'm went so to the mikvah. What was the reason she had to even go to the mikvah necessarily? She, she didn't wanted have to, to have a relation with her husband. But he was dying. You just said Chaver Kadisha is he, there. He was sick. So, he was sick. So right, meanwhile, Kadisha steps out. Listen to the story. I'm just telling you the facts. These are the facts that she's stating to the rabbi. in Prague. Okay, she's stating this to the rabbi. Tesvav, listen to the story and then you'll understand. Tesvav Adar, on the 5th, so this was, again, she had, she claimed she had relations on the 28th of year. He died the next day. His yard size on at year, in case you want to commemorate. Tesvav Adar, on the 15th of Adar, it's coming up, um, day after Purim, Yaldabat, she gave birth to a daughter. Okay, um, so how many months later is that? Anyone know the Hebrew months here? Chavtet year. He yeah. died of Haftet ear. 
and she gave birth on Tet Vav Adar. Ten months. Ten months. Nine. Nine? Okay. Nine months later, she gives birth. She gives birth to a daughter. She lived for a month, and the daughter died. Sadly, the daughter died. Based on the birth of this daughter, this woman, this widow, is saying, I'm pater from Chalitza. I don't have to do Chalitza because this was my husband's f- child from my husband. And I was pregnant when, well, you know, when he died. So a day later, after we had relations. Um, okay, um, so she says, I don't have to do Chalitza. They're coming to the rabbi, to know the beauty. This is a very suspicious story. He says, so the, the, you know, the women in the market, we're um, running at the water cooler. We're running there. They're talking at the water cooler. Shabbat, Shabbat, Nolda Biibushoznut. That this 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 girl was born with. It was an adulteress before. <coughs> not adulteress, well, but it was after After the husband already died. Um, and they're saying this. They're they're bringing sources for their water cooler talk. Number one, for seven years she didn't have, she, she didn't get pregnant from this guy. She didn't give birth. It doesn't make sense. Wouldn't be accepted. She didn't get pregnant from this last time or day before he died. Number two, two weeks after, I don't know how they know this, women know everything. Two weeks after he died, she she had a period. We have a, a klal in halacha that a pregnant woman doesn't have a period. So two weeks after the baldai, we know she had a period. How do you know it doesn't say? Okay. They can. Sure. They can. Okay. We're not getting into the scientific yeah. facts that are irrelevant. Yeah, this is the water cooler, remember? Yes. <laughs> Number three, they're saying, Lo yitachin shechola anush, a guy who's on his deathbed, a shoch of alash dvai, literally such a serious illness, on his deathbed, mesugu lechai ishud, afrot ishtom ibiyah kezu. Can he really impregnate his wife in such a weak state? Um, that's number three. Number four, benotzvakal, yeshnam edim, they claim they have witnesses, ame edim, sherot ishim ploni almoni. They saw this guy with Mr. with John Doe. Okay, so that's... What? Maybe the guy from the <laughs> Okay. Maybe. It's usually the older, <laughs> nine-year-old. <laughs> okay. So this is all. So now they're coming in front of the rabbi. You have the woman from the water cooler uh, um, claiming, and she's saying her story is she went to the mikvah the night before. It's all from the husband. Um, so first thing, so basically the Nodabihuda in his response here goes through point by point, discounting point by point. Okay, so we're not going to get into all the, the stories relevant. It's a nice, juicy story. whose points? Discounting water the, the water cooler. Right, the woman from the Meaning water cooler. Meaning that this is totally legit. No. Yes. Yeah. He you know, He's saying, listen, we have no, based on the water cooler talk, we have no reason to say this is not, this is not enough of a reason to say it's not his child. So based on this rabbi's understanding, the girl, the baby girl that died, was the okay? Was right. the, was he's the saying he okay. comes out at the end of the day, uh-huh. she's putter from Khalid. That's what you know to be the rule. 
Yes, and she's allowed to marry whoever she wants. She doesn't have to wait for the for the she's for the brother to grow. She doesn't have to wait for huh? twelve years. Exactly. Right. Right, right, right. So, so no, finds halachic basis to permit this yeah. woman to remarry without chalitza. Okay. Now no, we're not I, I'm, I'm just often biased by negatively biased by a lot of the stories where I hear that the woman had gone to the mikvah exactly like the day before, the week before. Oh, this is her story. We don't know. I, mean, I understand, I mean, but I all the stories are similar. Like even Melech David has the same story. She went to the mikvah right before to prove that it could not be from Ulia, her husband's baby. It had to be yeah. King David's baby. Okay. And therefore, this is the same like way you yes. prove whose baby it is based on the oh well, the point is if she the, the point is that you know, we we have to know that she was in a state she was in a state I that understand. she was able to have relations because if not then this whole story would be real well, meaning I understand that's proof to her she story. Had a period so it was not from a previous period. it proves that it wasn't somebody before Correct, that it only could be from him. Someone after. Until she goes to the mikvah, she right. can't have relations with her husband. Right. right. Well, I, I have the very same period. period. I'm sorry? So you from this before she had a period. Exactly. Well, no, but it's, 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 a, it's a way of declaring whose baby it is. Right, well it's also, by the way, because it, it happens to be scientifically that usually the, 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 you go to the mikvah approximately 12 to 14 Which? days after your period. Right. Which, which is the exact time scientifically where you're at the highest point of ovulation. Uh, okay. You know, majority. No, uh, which also means I'm just saying it's used yes, in these yes, of course it's sociologic. Yes. So it's also used but I'm saying halachically it's it's uh, it's an application. Course. Meaning if we know that she went to the mikvah, so the assumption is that she had relations with her witness, that was that was the norm. She had relations with her husband right. in general, not in this case where the guy's on his deathbed, but normally that would be the assumption. Had a relationship with somebody, and you don't have a period. You better make sure you go to the mikvah. Make a big noise about it, as if you had had a period. Exactly. Yes. That's how it was used. Sort of saying, yeah. Yes. Are you assuming that women would go around having affairs and use the mikvah as an excuse? I just like men, I'm sure did. Equally. Human nature is what it is. So, so first of all, so we're not going to go through every point. It's actually a sordid tshuva, fascinating tshuva. It discusses if a person, uh, someone on their deathbed, can have an erection, and it's a fascinating tshuva medically. Like you weren't supposed to speed someone's like you know death, like putting him through stress of sex. Like, isn't that? Him yeah, we've well, got a ghostess. No, I don't think it's a ghostess. He actually says an interesting thing. He discusses, <laughs> like, oh, I wonder, I don't know scientifically, without this is just a parenthetical Airway point, whether place. it could be the fact that he's weaker, he discusses the psychology of sex, that it might have, um, whatever, I can't get into no, details, please. but meaning more of a reason that she could have got pregnant than when he was healthy. Mm -hmm. It goes into that fascinating uh, science here. Uh, we're, like, what we're I got get like the sweater I got from Brooks Brothers is dyed in the wool. Okay, so tied in the wool. All right, didn't go. We didn't work. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Okay, we're gonna. So we gotta finish up here. Yeah, you will. You have to be in Angleton soon. So, so uh, the point is like this. So yeah. we're gonna focus on the chalitza part because that's what's relevant to us. So let's read the psukim here. Very important. This is the relevant to the, this answer. No, the beauty's answer. So let's just read the psukim here. Um, this is the actual psukim in the Torah. They're in English, so everyone can follow along. 
um, the Hebrew, it says, Yeshu, this is in Parshat Kiseitze in Deuteronomy, Devarim, chapter 25. This is the Pesukim about Yibum. It says, when two brothers reside together, and one of them dies, and he has no, that's the key words there, we're going to see, Ben he has no son, or means a child, doesn't mean a son specifically. Um, this the Torah talks. This is a male term. The the wife shall not marry out to a strange man. Rather, her yava, meaning the brother-in-law, shall come unto her and take her to a wife of Yidma and and uh, betroth her or the yavamar. I don't know if there's an English word for that. And the Torah continues. The child that is born shall perpetuate the brother's name the brother who had deceased and his name shall not be obliterated from, from Israel and again this is where we see the concept perpetuating the memory of a deceased person who died, who died it's not the memory. childless it's the name Yes, it's okay, not the yeah. memory okay. it, was a, it was just a property thing property. right? Property. I mean, you're you're keeping ownership of some value in the I family. Say that. I don't see what you see. Oh, no, it just says the name. Yeah, but I, mean, I understand it to be the memory of the deceased. Meaning, if someone dies childless, his name is obliterated. He doesn't exist anymore. He left nothing in this world. It's all if, about money. If he he was if he left the child, so then his name will continue on. That's the way I understand it. But no, it, whatever you want to understand property, that he's leaving on. Property. How say anything about property is. here. Yeah, yeah. Huh? It's not his name, it's his father's name. Yeah, okay, but the right. point the is the family, family name the continues. Family. Yeah, yeah. Okay, as opposed to uh, not. Um, as opposed to her taking any of the but previous But I'll tell you why it's not property. I'll tell you why you have to be wrong. Because even I if they have a, a female, it's still, he does, there's no evil. Female doesn't get the property, according to the Torah, at least. Female doesn't acquire the, the belongings of the father. But still, that Why fact would? that he... Why wouldn't they? The Allah is... Uh, I thought Benot Zalchad already said... Oh, that's if there's no sons. That's what I'm no saying. Sons. You just said if there's a daughter. Oh, okay. So if Joe Good dies point. and his brother Tom <laughs> marries the wife, is the, they have a son, is the son Jake? Is he Jake the son of Joe or Jake the son of Tom? It all... I didn't get that. Sorry. He, he's the son of the se- of his second father, but he's but right. It's but still the, the same family, family name continues. But it's also a question. Uh, you're right on the question of property because the firstborn son mm-hmm. gets the double share, so that if the child is the yeah, but it was wrong. I just realized he's wrong because I want to be wrong because <laughs> the the son born afterwards, like like he just pointed out, is not the original father's son. He's not going to inherit property. That's not his father. So whatever property there was is not going to go to the son. I thought that so was it's irrelevant. It'll go to, I thought the child perpetuating the name. Right, but it doesn't mean he inherits the, the father. I'm it, saying anything about property. But how, who else would You're inherit making the that property? Wait, so uh, Bill, wife, die, Bill dies. Bill dies then. Okay, with the uncle, I mean, there's other, there's a whole hierarchy in the no, car. Yeah, the hierarchy actually, before the wife, wife, no. The wife is, uh, the son doesn't wife get gets supported. But she doesn't uh, inherit. Actually, his brothers so inherit. Well, she's the brothers. So the brothers would get. If you just take, if you look at it for a second, like the story of King Henry did. Arthur died. Right. He, Arthur, Henry, Henry married Arthur. Henry married Catherine. Right. So Henry inherited the kingdom. 
Right. Annie inherited Catherine and whatever their wealth was, Henry inherited. That's this. It goes with the man. It goes with the man. In that the was Bronx, they taught you all this English history? No, I'm a history really? buff. Okay. I'm a history I'm buff. I didn't think in Brown's School of Science. They no, no, I, I'm from Brooklyn, by the way. Oh. Oh, Would have gone to Brooklyn Tech. I think this is very practical. White flight caused us to move to Long Island. Even in the Benot Slofchad, they also had to marry within their tribe. Yes. They well, could they marry. Didn't, they but the idea is to yeah. still keep the yeah, property. But, the, but again, here it's not, it doesn't say anything about property. You're you're implying that. I'm in totally this adding that. Yes. Okay. Totally. Okay, so then we gotta get to the answer because I gotta leave you. We gotta get to the punchline. So so uh, um, number seven says each if the the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, so she comes to the court to the elders of Amra, um, he refused to perpetuate his brother's name. This is where she wanted to do it. She doesn't have a choice. She does. No. Yes. He. No, no. Here it's saying if he refuses, the man. then she could bring him to court to do this practice. Right. But either he way, he doesn't have a choice. She has a prerogative too. Yes, she could. It doesn't say it here. And then this verse, it doesn't say it, but telling what the Allah is. So, so he does not wish to perform the obligation of a husband's brother with me. So the karla ziknaero, they call him into the court. The dibroi love, and they talk to him. And he stands up and says, "I do not wish to take her." Viniksha. His brother's wife shall approach him. He removes his shoe from his foot. She spits in front of him. And she, and she answers from the Megillah, a similar language. So be done to the man who refuses to build up his brother's household. And the family shall be called family one whose shoe was removed. By the way, this again is done today. If you look, if you search online, Chalitza shoe, they actually have a special shoe that's used in many bits, you can see an image of it. Um, but uh, I don't know how to spell Chalitza, that's a different story. Um, but you can figure it out. But but the point is that it's done today, and it's not very often, because again, it has to be that the guy died childless right. with a younger brother. Um, so that's when it's done, but there are cases it's done. In Israel, in America, I've never seen one live. I've seen it on video. Um, and I've seen the shoot, but I've never seen it done, and I never participated in it. Thank God. Um, okay, so so now it's just getting to the to the end result here. So the Nadabiyudu, in this response, and with this pregnant woman, after he goes Here's and this video of somebody spitting in the shoe. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't really see it, but he's rotating. That's the shoe. That's the shoe, yeah. So it's a cool looking shoe. It's a special halachic ramifications. Is it okay to show the naked calf muscle with the calf skin? No, no, it's he's wearing It's the male's wearing No, she has to be there. The woman's there. It's actually a pretty traumatic process because she's in the room with all these rabbis. Very traumatic. She's, it doesn't say she spits in the shoe here. She spits in front of him. It yeah. suggests that she spits in, in his face almost. <laughs> That's probably what should have been done. Does this go on and on? Or is yeah. it it's like a half hour process. She has to say these words. It's something that doesn't happen many uh, more commonly than people swinging chicken around. <laughs>
over so there. You, you can watch it for your own discretion. No, for no, adults no. only. Okay, so so basically the bottom line is he says like this: the Gemara and Yavamis. Um, after he refutes all the details of, of yeah. the case of this woman, of husband's deathbed, so he then goes on to say the question becomes: still, when did she be fasting? He goes into the science of when did she become pregnant? Because there's a Gemara Nivamas that says that if, of course, that if the woman's pregnant at the time of death, so then she's exempt. <laughs> Excuse me, exempt from Chalitza. The question is why? He didn't have a child. Assuming, by the way, only with the stipulation that the child lives, meaning is born. Right. Meaning, meaning let's say she's pregnant, then she miscarries prior to giving birth. Right. I usually miscarries prior to giving birth. Mm -hmm. So then, of course, at that point, she would have to do Chalitza again. After the ch after she miscarries, then she would be required to do chalitz. But assuming the child's born, um, so then the halacha is that she's exempt from chalitz. Meaning, as long as she's pregnant at the time of death, she's exempt from chalitz. So he goes into the whole discussion here. In this case, she's claiming the relationship she had with her husband were a day before death. Um, scientifically, we know, and he even knew that. Believe it or not, rabbis knew something that it takes three days till the till the egg gets fertilized. So. Technically, she wasn't pregnant until three days after death. So at the time of death, you know, even according to her story, you know, the beauty says, maybe we should say that she's not exempt from chalitza because, because the egg, she's really wasn't pregnant until three days later. So at the time of death, she wasn't pregnant, even though she had had relations with her husband. Okay? So, how so he, says, he says no. He says we don't find such a thing. We don't find such a thing in Shas. We don't say that... If it's the first three days of pregnancy that she's not, the fact that she potentially she's going to be pregnant, that's that enough counts. to exempt her from chalitza. Now, how do we know that a pregnant woman is exempt from chalitza? It's from the verse itself. In the first verse here, in verse five, Torah says um, the, the Gemara extrapolates from this verse. It says It says he has no child. The, to the Talmud makes a play on words here. The drasha is, Ben Ayinlo, search for a son. Meaning it's not enough that she, we know he has a son. If there's a potential son around, that means she's pregnant, says the Talmud, she's also exempt from Yibum and Chalitza. Okay, that's the Talmud's drasha. Therefore, a pregnant woman does not have to do Yibum or Chalitza. Again, assuming the stipulation that the son does. So the question becomes um, as to how, again, uh, what happens here? We're talking about. So, what do you, to make a long story short? Because we only have a minute left. Because I don't want to do this again next week. You had enough sperm for a while. Um, the the point is that. Where are they going with this? Oh, so he says that since there's a concept when the woman's pregnant, that's that's only if the woman's actually pregnant. But what he's basing on, you see from the Nadav Yehuda. Even though in the case where he's saying where, the, where she wasn't really impregnant, she had the sperm within her body, but didn't fertilize, the egg wasn't fertilized yet, still, that's because we're, we're not going to, we don't see any way that that would, that would say that she still, that would not be considered pregnant. Um, here he's saying where the sperm is just in a bank somewhere, and, and she, you need an act of person now to make it happen, to make, to impregnate her, saying that wouldn't say, that wouldn't fit into this drush of, Ben Enlo Ainalov, that we search for a son. That's not called right. as an existing child. So when she's pregnant, the child is almost in existence. It's going to happen. Assuming the child's born, then, then he has someone to perpetuate his memory. The fact that you have sperm in a bank, he says, that wouldn't 
exempt her from chalitza and yibam. That's different from the case of another Yudah, um, based on his logic. Um, he says, now what happens if she waited for chalitza? She didn't do anything right away, and then you're pregnant, and she actually gets pregnant from the deceased husband's sperm. So he says, and even in that case, the fact, the, the chiv of yibam works at the time of death. Okay, we don't care what happens later. Um, so once at the time of death, she had an obligation of yibam, or chalitza in this case, so then, then you have to do it. The fact that later on, she, the husband's memory will be perpetuated, doesn't make a difference. His proof to that is, the Talmud discusses, let's say, at the time of death, he had a child, and then the child subsequently dies. We don't say now, now she was married to someone else, we don't say now she has to go back and do chalitza, because the husband has no perpetuation of his memory. We don't do that. Because it says, he, he says what's called a Torah, we have a concept, you know, like this one, we've discussed it before, the Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness, it's a verse in Mishlei, and therefore we're not going to, we, we don't, halacha can't mess up your life, many people would not agree with that, but halacha does, it's not going to turn everything on edge, meaning so, in the case where she already married someone else, and now you're going to say, oh, the, her, his, the son from the previous husband died, his only child, now we're going to make her go back and do chalitza, he said that would, not be fitting. So the same thing here. She's not exempt. Exactly. He says, even if a later point, I mean, as long as it's post-mortem, yes. She's not, not, not exempt her at all. Which is terrible for the woman. What do you mean terrible for the woman? Because now she's still obligated for Yibum. Yibum. It's not terrible. She goes to court. She spits in a sale. Not a major thing. Okay. I mean, it's not. It's a traumatic experience. I agree with you. But it's not the end of the world. So if her brother-in-law was a minor, was a minor child, she we have wait. to wait until tell me she until can't remarry. For, I, I didn't look up the halacha today. From what I remember, yes, could be. I don't remember. I don't remember exactly. I don't remember. I have to look it up. It's I don't want to say anything. for the woman again. Yeah, so if she's 25, her, brother, her brother-in-law was nine, and so she can't get married to I'm not sure. I, I don't want to say anything without looking up the halacha. I don't remember. Because he has to be able to say something with a, don't say probably legal, halacha, but, a legal statement. But, uh, yes, but anyways, that's the bottom it's line is banking sperm... <laughs> Banking sperm is never is not an exemption for Halitza in case you have this question. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>